athletic competition. It can easily be broken down into two parts. The minutes or hours it takes to complete the event. Then weeks, months, and years of joy or heartbreak. Finally, the decades to analyze and debate it. From the press box to press row, Donald Ware will break it all down for you with an in-depth look at historically black college athletics, as well as the biggest news stories and newsmakers of the day. It's time to talk the talk with those who walk the walk. From the press box to press row, here's your host, Donald Ware. I think, I think, I think very deeply. In about four seconds, a teacher will begin to speak. I think very deeply. The big game was obviously a big hit between the Bengals and the Rams. And we're going to talk a lot about that today here on the program. I want to talk some NBA as Ben Simmons and James Harden have both spoken after that blockbuster trade on last week. We're going to talk about that today on the program as well. The halftime show at the big game was one of the greatest that I can remember seeing. And I'm not really, you know, I wasn't, I'm not really a big halftime guy, to be honest with you. It depends on who's performing. And when it was first announced as to who was performing, I'm like, this show is going to be off the chain. And it ultimately was because you added 50 Cent to the mix. I mean, 50 was okay, right? But Dr. Dre, obviously the headliner. You've got Snoop. You've got Eminem. You've got Mary J. You've got Kendrick Lamar, and then you add 50 Cent to that mix. It was absolutely unbelievable, and I enjoyed it very much immensely. I mean, we were sort of getting into it. It was a family affair at our house in terms of watching the big game. And so, you know, my wife and I are of a certain age, and so, you know, we were early teenagers, early 20s, when really when Snoop Dogg came uh, about, I mean, Dr. Dre's, I mean, to me, when you talk about hip-hop, maybe the greatest producer to ever live. But let's not forget, Dr. Dre had many albums as well. Now, we can talk about who wrote lyrics for him, whether it was DOC or going back to the, the days of NWA. You can talk about Ice Cube. And by the way, do you feel like Ice Cube may have either felt a little bit slighted or was, in fact, slighted? I feel like... When you're talking about an event of that magnitude coming to the city of Los Angeles, right? Now, I know NAS- uh, I know Ice Cube was part of NASCAR the week before that came to L.A., which, from my understanding, was a big success. But And I don't know the, all of the parameters and how all of it works. I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure out of the five that were there, right, who you could have taken out now. To me, it would have been a, a nice fit to have Ice Cube as your your guest, your your guest that wasn't originally supposed to have been part of the festivities. I thought that would have been uh, incredibly dope because when you think about Ice Cube, Ice Cube is LA, and as big as Ice Cube is, I mean, you can look at him. Uh, from a now you know when you look at careers if you're talking about 
artist, right? I mean, compared to those artists, I, I don't know. I mean, Ice Cube was the man. I mean, you go back to the NWA days, and then you talk about Ice Cube as a solo a solo artist with a, with the EP he had that came out in ninety late nineties ninety one a time to uh, I forget what the name of the EP was but it was really dope. It had like seven eight songs on it. Jackin' for Beats was one of the songs you look at. Death Certificate was tremendous, and then it, it started. It, it 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 he wasn't as much into hip hop sort of after that because Boys in the Hood came out. He acted in that, and then he really got into acting. But when you talk about who is L.A.? Ice Cube is L.A. And I thought, I, I don't know if he felt slighted, but I felt slighted uh, for him. So the halftime show, Mickey Guyton and the Star Spangled Banner. I mean, Mickey Guyton absolutely blew it out of the water. She blew it absolutely out of the water, I thought. And so just the whole show and then the game in of itself was an outstanding game. So we'll talk about that today on the program you can join us on the conversation hit us up via twitter at box to row b-o-x-t-o-r-o-w i look at this football game and the Bengals definitely had some opportunities in this game i thought i thought that the rams coming in would win the game and and one of the reasons i i didn't trust matthew stafford entirely and he showed me why one of the interceptions he threw three touchdowns but also threw two picks one of the picks was not his fault the other one towards I think it was in the second quarter he tried to throw it uh tried to throw it up and he threw it short and was intercepted in the end zone now he had I'm going to tell you what that last drive was absolutely spectacular in terms of ball placement in terms of he, he threw a really a couple of really nice balls to Cooper Cup in traffic that Cooper Cup ultimately caught and by the way the fourth down and one call to get the ball in the hands of Cooper Cup on a wide receiver option and you know he he run he he gets past the first man picks up the first down pretty easily I thought that was a genius call and the reason why ultimately from an offensive perspective that the Rams ended up winning the game I told you last week I the Bengals offensive line not good I mean seven sacks Six or seven sacks, two of those uh, by two Hall of Famers, and Aaron Donald uh, ultimately got two sacks. And Aaron Donald had an absolutely tremendous game. Von Miller was very good as well, and I thought that the experience would win out because if you if you looked at that game and you felt the flow of the game, I mean, and when the Bengals had that lead, and I mean, I I, I thought the Bengals were going to win that football game, but that fourth down and one play was ultimate. It was a critical play. And ultimately, the um, Rams were able to come back. Cooper Cup was magnificent in this game. I thought that the MVP should have ultimately gone to Aaron Donald, like I think a lot of people do, and I'll I'll tell you why. Um, Listen, you look at some of the plays, I think the play where he pushed Joe Burrow out of bounds, and that was a legal hit, by the way, and then the sidelines got all fiery. Um, you know, and from that point on, he just sort of really took the game over. And you look at the Bengals' drive, the last two plays, that running play when it looked like it was third, when it looked like it was it was third and one, and it looked like the Bengals were going to get that first down. I think it was P. Ryan that ran the football, and it looked like he had the first down all 
almost, and if he had stretched the ball out, he would have had the first down, and Donald just pulled him back, fourth down, sacks. Well, he didn't sack the quarter. He didn't sack Burrow, but he forced him to, to throw just a, a hell, um, you know, just a, a ball to get rid of it to try to make a play, and ultimately um, uh, brought him down, and the game was over at that point. I think what happens, and I've covered a Super Bowl before. You cover these games where you – vote for MVPs I think what happens is you vote for your MVP early on right so the MVP at that time the 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 voting by the writers or the media more specifically for the MVP was already closed at that point so because because even if you looked at Aaron you could still argue that Aaron Donald could have been MVP even before the last drive by the Bengals. I think he solidified it with the plays he made on the last drive by the Bengals. It's just that those, I'm sure, if I'm, I'm pretty sure about this, having again been been around and and when you vote for MVPs of events and and so on and so forth, and having done it for the Super Bowl in the past, that was already probably midway through the fourth quarter. They were already closing the voting for the MVP. They may, I mean, that's something that may be worth revisiting and uh, making it so that, I mean, I get it. You're trying to get it in. It's a lot of people. You have to tally it. I mean, it's a lot that's involved in that. I get all of that. But I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah. Cup caught the game-winning touchdown, which by the way was an excellent catch Um, and a good throw by Matthew Stafford. You know, he just threw it behind him and, and allowed for Cup to adjust. But uh, but Aaron Donald was an absolute man in that game. You know, uh, Beckham Jr. ultimately goes down in that football game. He was on, he was on, I mean, he was on his way to having a tremendous game. Okay, he was on his way to having an absolutely tremendous game. And, you know, had a couple of catches, went down, and the whole complexity of the game changed because now the Rams could play cup a little bit more. And see, if you think about it, you look at the total course of the game, and that's the other reason to me why Aaron Donald was the MVP. You look at the total course of the game. Now, he, he didn't have a lot of maybe a lot of tackles and certainly not a lot of sacks early on, but he was so disruptive uh, to a lot of degree early on in the game, and that carried throughout the course of the game, whereas Cooper Cup had a really, really good second half, and in specific, uh, specifically, a really, really good fourth quarter. So, uh, but with that being said, the complexity of the Rams' offensive game changed, and not only that, the Bengals' defense was tough, did not allow for the Rams to run the football. I thought that was a story in the game in terms of the lack of production by the Rams offense, especially early on. Okay. Now, it, I, mean, when I, I shouldn't say early on. I, really early on, it looked like it was going to be a blowout because the Rams able to move the football down the field really through the passing game. But after the first two touchdowns, it sort of went stagnant for the Rams. The Bengals clamped down, did not allow for a running game, really clamped down. And then ultimately, uh, the Rams were able to come back in the fourth quarter. So it was a great football game, no doubt about it. All right, still to come here on Box to Row on ESPNU Radio on Sirius XM, Tony Madlock 
the head men's basketball coach at South Carolina State, is going to join us on the program to talk some SCSU basketball. Doing pretty well. This is a South Carolina State program that won one basketball game last year, currently 13-12, and 12, had a nice stretch to start the season, and is one game over 500 in the MEAC, but the MEAC's got some tough teams, some tough play. You look at Norfolk State, you look at North Carolina Central. I mean, there's some tough games in the MEAC, so looking forward to talking with Tony Madlock, plus our Black History Month Listen Back will take us back to a conversation with Jerry Rice, the great Jerry Rice, who, of course, played his collegiate football at Mississippi Valley State. But up next, I want to talk about, so North Carolina A&T, the athletics department, okay, met with the executive committee, uh, committee of the university's board to ask to move to the CAA. Now, remember, we were talking about this. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago when it was announced that Hampton was going to make the move from the Big South to the CAA. What did that mean for North Carolina A&T? Not necessarily from a Hampton perspective, but from a perspective of A&T. And really, I mean, quite frankly, if you look at the other four schools, but we're going to focus on A&T, what does that mean from a football perspective? Well, A&T has asked to make that move, but will hold off on football until the 2023 season as not to put the Big South in a bind. I like that, and I like the way that A&T is operating in that space. I'll talk more about that as we roll. On the way, it's more of From the Press Box to Press Row with Donald Ware. Right, 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 right here. Right here on ESPNU Radio on Sirius XM. Precious Rose Dunlap, and this is my mother, Michelle Timberlake Roll, founder of Marjorie Sweet Jerky Incorporated. We would at this time like to thank our new customers as well as our repeating customers for your business. For every one million orders that we receive, our company is giving two million dollars away to the bottom of four hundred of our paid customers. You see, that's the way we roll. So come place an order at Marjorie's Beef Jerky. The old renaissance is the new renaissance. Standing on tradition while embracing the spirit of distinction. This is the Harlem Brewing Company. Uniquely crafted beer brewed to deliver a taste, a sound, and a feeling that can only be described in one way. Harlem style. So come and take a trip on the A-Train with our Harlem Sugar Hill Golden Ale and our Harlem Renaissance Whip Beer. The neighborhood original. Sponsored by Harlem Beer Distributing North Carolina. For more information, log on to their website at harlembeernc.com. Now, back to From the Press Box to Press Row with Donald Ware on ESPNU Radio on Sirius XM. Still to come here on Box to Row on ESPNU Radio on Sirius XM. Our Black History Month Listen Back, a conversation with the legendary Jerry Rice. Also, Tony Madlock, the head men's basketball coach at South Carolina State, going to join us today on the program. So, again, 
once Hampton made the move from the CAA, or excuse me, from the Big South to the CAA, as it was announced a couple of weeks ago, the question became, what is North Carolina A&T's next move? Only five football-playing institutions in the Big South right now, uh, which include A&T. And so ultimately, what is now going to happen, Earl Hilton, the athletics director of North Carolina A&T, has made a, a presentation to the executive committee board of North Carolina A&T State University to accept the invite to the CAA. Now, now listen to what I'm saying. Accepting the invite. The CAA invited North Carolina A&T to be a member and remember, when I talked about this a couple of weeks ago in terms of could would the CAA accept A&T, again, North Carolina A&T had to do something. Made the move from the Big South only a couple of years ago. It was announced, the move was announced, as a matter of fact, February of 2020, right? So now you have a situation where A&T... It, it has the athletics department, in essence, Earl Hilton, the athletics director, has recommended that ultimately A&T make this move. Uh, the chancellor, Harold Martin, has seconded that move in, in a vote of 10 to nothing for that executive committee. It was a unanimous decision. So now it goes before the board as a whole. I think this is something that the board will accept, whether it's unanimous or not, we'll see. If I remember correctly, the vote to move from the MEAC to the Big South was not unanimous. I think when you look at this, I mean, and really the CAA offered A&T a couple of years ago when A&T was looking to make the move from the MEAC, the CAA offered a couple of years ago. A&T, from what I was reading at the time, just felt like it was more of a Northeastern Conference which it which it definitely was, but if you look at the schools now, I mean Elon is is what twenty five minutes from A and T, right? Uh, College of Charleston, obviously in Charleston, South Carolina. Even though College of Charleston doesn't have a football program, but you're talking about teams in the South, North Carolina, Wilmington, uh, right? And and then of course Hampton is going to come aboard. William uh, William and Mary is certainly a part of the conference uh, as of now. So now it makes a little bit more sense. I mean, listen, even when A&T made the move to the Big South, you still had some travel to do uh, at the time when you looked at Monmouth in New Jersey and then, of course, going down south uh, when you looked at North Alabama. Both of those two schools are gone. And by the way, Monmouth also is going to be part of this deal that makes the, that is going to make the move now to the CAA. So this is interesting. Like the CAA was already, and, and a couple of things here, in, in remembering and having had the conversation on this show with Earl Hilton a couple of years ago and in talking about that move, he mentioned the fact that this was more about student-athlete welfare and academics, right? And, okay, 
you can look at those things, and maybe those things are true, and it was about less travel, and I think as a whole, it was less travel. I mean, if you take North Alabama and Monmouth out of the equation, it, 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 there definitely was going to be less travel. But you can say those things, and is it really about academics? And, and, and well, more specifically, student welfare, because to me, and not this is athletics, particularly on this level, is about marketing. So now, A and T market has a marketing reach of a broader base. Okay, so I think when you and and then also in the presentation that Earl Hilton made, he he looked really a lot lot at the academics, particularly with respect to the schools that were already in the CAA. Big South has some great schools, no knock, and Earl Hilton said as much. Wasn't really a knock against the CAA at all. I mean, excuse me, against the Big South at all. But when you look at the CAA and some of the academics within the CAA, you look at the basketball, you look at the athletics as well, right? Like the basketball in the CAA is very, very solid. It, it, it was... It was and, and the football is really, really good. Now, the only downside football wise is that uh, James Madison is moving from the CAA. That's that's sort of the only um, downside because you're talking about a national power in FCS. And I don't even know if that's really a I mean, that, I don't know. That's not necessarily a, you know, I mean, if you're the CAA, you don't want to see James Madison go, but it it lends itself to opportunities for expansion and to get some good football. So you're getting an A&T, right? A&T's got a solid program. Yeah, it was down a little bit this year, but overall, it's definitely a solid program. So it's an interesting move. I I can't say that I saw that it was coming, to the that it was going to ultimately be the CAA. Now you got a bunch of schools in the CAA, which is nothing wrong with that. We're seeing super conferences right now but also a couple of weeks ago I talked about the MEAC and the Big South possibly joining forces so I wonder if that is something that either conference would consider because now this is the thing uh, it, it the this this move by A&T to the CAA now once it's approved by the board as a whole would take place beginning for the 2022-23 athletic season with the exception of this two sports football and the I forget what the other sport is now it's it's a it's an olympic sport but again as i mentioned earlier Earl Hilton says hey we're not going to do that to the big south just all of a sudden up and leave so now the Big South has its AQ automatic qualifier because now it has six schools for the 22 season. It has all it has six schools for the 2022 season in terms of football playing institutions. It's going to put the Big South behind the eight ball for the 23-24 season. Now you got to try to get some more schools into the Big South. How many schools would be ready to rock and roll? That's why to me. It makes all the sense in the world for the Big South and the MEAC to ultimately join forces. You've got six football-playing institutions in the Big South. And by the way, 
there was some talk. There's been some talk of perhaps Howard joining the CAA. I just uh, now from an academic standpoint, it would make sense, right? Because you look at what Howard's brand is. Howard's brand is academics. It is less about athletics. So from that vantage point, it may make sense. But where we stand right now, you've got six football playing institutions in the Big South. Currently, currently, and you have six in the MEAC, right? Join forces, you'll have 12. Now, of course, for the 23-24 season, if you don't lose any more other than A&T, you would have five if you joined and some kind of, even if you joined as a, you know, even if, if the Big South and and the MEAC did something along a, along the lines of a partnership with respect to football because both schools are solid with respect to basketball. Uh, would you like, I don't know, is it is it better to have more schools from a basketball standpoint? I mean, not necessarily, as long as you have enough to qualify for the NCAA Division I tournament. That's, that's all you need. But from a football playing side of things, you'd have 12 schools because all of these conferences, you're going to the, the NCAA and these conferences and the way that the conference, listen, there's a trickle down, okay, on a smaller scale, right? But it's all a trickle down from Texas and Oklahoma making the move from the uh, Big 12 to the SEC, okay? You're going to, I mean, it, it's all, it's all, NCAA and conference realignment is just on a it's just on a it's on a smaller scale now you're going to have some other schools that are going to have to retool uh you know Conference USA a while ago had to retool and then when Conference USA has to retool guess what they're going to borrow or go to some teams in the FCS it's it is it's just a trickle down it may not trickle down right away but it, it eventually will trickle down when you have major schools making moves uh, within conferences. So it's interesting. Uh, we'll see ultimately what happens, right? Um, A&T had to make a move, it felt like. It made a move. It ultimately, originally, I think, wanted to be in the CAA anyway. Uh, just felt like it wasn't good from a student-athlete welfare perspective, et cetera. But now it certainly is. Uh, and, 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 you know, you add Hampton to the conference as well a black history month listen back with jerry rice is up next now back to from the press box to press row with donald ware on espnu radio on sirius xm donald ware Ware, our black history month listen back takes us back to a conversation with the one and only jerry rice and we had a chance to catch up with jerry rice back in 2013 phenomenal player the best wide receivers regarded as the best wide receiver to ever play in the national football league our black history month listen back with the one and only jerry rice absolutely 1549 receptions uh 22,895 receiving yards 208 touchdowns I think those numbers certainly speak for themselves no, no, I, I, I needed more I needed more <laughs> if I was playing today and, and the advantage goes to the receiver today you know because you after five yards you got to let the receiver uh 
go downfield and and if, if if your hands are on the receiver there's going to be a flag thrown or something like that so the advantage goes to the receiver a little bit but uh i had a great time and i had a great cast of of teammates that really helped me put up stats like that and you know football is not an individual sport it's a team sport and and i was able to go out there and uh win some super bowls and it it, it was a fantastic ride no question about it. And think about it, Jerry. Guys kind of going through the draft now when we look at uh, 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 Teo and the fact a lot was made with the 4.8 that he had with the 40-yard dash. And, I mean, you didn't have the greatest uh, 40 time, but the fact of the matter is, I mean, how much how much do we stock do we need to put into things like this? I mean, guys like yourself are just football players improved what they could do on the field. And that's the bottom line, and I don't know why they focus so hard on the 40. And I want to see a player, and especially a wide receiver. This is what I'm looking for at a combine. I want to see the guy. I want to see his lateral movement. I want to see him be able to drop his hips, come out of his cut without taking too many steps. And, and I want to see explosion off the line of scrimmage, and I want to see separation. And, and if you're able to see that, you know that this guy – can uh, really he can run by you or he can get the separation that he needs so the quarterback can see the lane and, and deliver the football. But for some reason, the focus, the 40-yard dash, and, and I remember when I first came out, they said, well, you know, he doesn't have blazing speed. But, hey, no one never caught me because <laughs> I had football speed. Right. Now, if you line these guys up and you put – the entire uniform on them. I want to see the helmet, the shoulder pads, everything, and I want to see what they run in the in the forty yard, you know, the forty yard dash. And football is about stop and go, and and I, I just I just feel like it's it's not it's not fair to judge a player just by his forty time. You know, it's about being a football player, being able to contribute to that team, and uh, and. And, you know, I, when I look back over my career, you know, I just felt like I was, I was fast enough to, uh, to run by you or I could, uh, uh, you know, run good routes where I could get separation where the quarterback could uh, deliver the football. That is the voice of the one and only Jerry Rice. Jerry, uh, and then we're going back to 2010 in terms of being named the greatest player ever in the NFL by NFL Networks. Uh, what does that mean to you? That means that I had some great uh, players around me, and I was able to go out there and and excel, and and just show my uh, my ability on the football field. Uh, you know, you look at Joe Montana, Ronnie Lott, Roger Craig, John Taylor, and the list goes on and on. And I think we work together as a cohesive group, and that's the reason why we were able to uh, win so many Super Bowls, and that's the reason why. I was able to put up outstanding numbers. You know, uh, the best owner, Eddie DeBarlow, uh, the genius when it comes to Bill Walsh being able to inspire you to go out there and play your best football. And uh, we always wanted to uh, just go out and win football games. And if we didn't win during the playoffs, if we didn't get to the Super Bowl, it was like a cloud. It was a dark cloud here in San Francisco. And, and and the whole world is completely shut down for a little bit because, you know, we knew the expectations here in San Francisco and the players, uh, you know, they they looked at it, they stared it in the eye, and they welcomed, welcomed 
it 100%, and I think that's why we had so much success on the field. Man, and, and think about it, Jeremy. The, all the names you mentioned, Roger Craig, Ronnie Lott, Joe Montana, Steve Young. You look at John Taylor, who played his ball, Delaware State. You're talking right. about some, yeah, like yourself, a guy that went to Mississippi Valley State. I mean, you're talking about some great players. Let me take you back to your days at Mississippi Valley State and all the records that you set. As a matter of fact, as a senior, you came in ninth in terms of the Heisman voting. What do you remember? And, you know, with the numbers, man, I mean, that you know, you should have been higher than that, but – what, what what do you remember most about those days at Mississippi Valley State? Oh, man, Archie, the Gunslinger, Cooley, Willie, the Satellite, Todd. There's tons of fun. We had that big offensive line. We had a running back that was probably built like uh, like a Kevin Johnson. You know, a guy that was just he really uh, could carry the rock. But you know, what I remember is that the hard work, the dedication, and and and, and and Archie the Gunslinger Cooley, what he brought to uh, the swag, it was a no huddle. And after after we had so much success with that, you notice that some of the teams in the NFL started using the no huddle. And you had to be in shape for that. And the way we conditioned ourselves, we would pretty much wear the opponent down. In the fourth quarter, it was like they were exhausted and we are bouncing around just ready to go. So we worked really hard, and, and, and then we, we gained a lot of exposure from running that no-huddle offense. And uh, then people started coming in. Scouts started coming in. They were curious, what is going on at Mississippi State University? <laughs> Why are these guys putting up, up unbelievable numbers? And, you know, that, that brought awareness to the school. And after that, I got drafted to the San Francisco 49ers. And everything just, you know, just fell in place. It it really did. And, and I got to ask you about this because today, Jerry, we're seeing a lot of obviously black quarterbacks in the league and, you know, back during the 80s, not as many. What do you think with – because Willie Totten, I mean, put up some big numbers along with you yet didn't get his shot in the league. Did, what are your thoughts on that? Was, it be, was that the climate at the time, the reason that Willie Totten didn't get his shot? Well, you know, with timing is everything. And at that time, they wanted to either cut, convert you over to a defensive player or or uh, a wide receiver. And Totten was very talented. Totten could drop back and, and he could assess the field. And he had a rocket arm. He did everything that, that he could possibly do. Uh, but now you're starting to see, like, RG3. Uh, you know, Doug Williams really, really put uh, – put us on the map because he was the first black quarterback to ever win the Super Bowl. And, you know, Randall Cunningham, uh, from so many other black quarterbacks, you know, these guys paved the way. And, and I think that's why you're seeing so many guys out there now that that they don't look at as, okay, you know, this guy might play quarterback in college. Then all of a sudden they want to convert uh, this guy to playing receiver or running back, defensive back. Um, you know, I feel like we are very intelligent and we can go out there and we can uh, command the huddle and we can make this, uh, good decisions to put the team uh, in position to win football games. Wrapping it up with the one and only, the legendary Jerry Rice. Jerry, we appreciate the time. Um, lastly, 
And once you retired, I mean, it was a foregone conclusion that you were going to be elected to the Pro Football uh, Hall of Fame. And that happened, of course, in 2010. But when it actually happened, when that day came, what were your feelings that day? Oh, my God. I was, uh, you, you, you know, you say you're going to control your emotions and you're going to do all that. You, you, you just don't know what, what you know, what's going to happen. And everybody, everybody kept saying, well, you, you're a shoe-in. You're shooting, and you're going in no matter what. But I looked at that just like the draft. I didn't know what was going to happen in the draft. I didn't know what was going to happen at uh, the Hall of Fame. And once they called my name, I said, wow, this is unbelievable. Now I get a chance to go into another elite group of guys. You know, because when you go into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, it means all your peers, everybody, you know, they feel like you're worthy, that you have done something for the game of football. And, and and you deserve to be, uh, you know, in there with those guys. So when they called my name, the emotions came out. I thought about uh, BL Moore High School, the small school that I went to. I thought about I thought about the small college I went to, Mississippi Valley State U- University, being able to represent them, go into the N- NFL, excel to show that hey, you can come from a small black college and have success on the football field. So all of those things just factor in. And, you know, also playing with the San Francisco 49ers, winning Super Bowls, and and just watching people just go crazy. It was just amazing that I was able to really just touch so many lives and, and, uh, and have, you know, little kids look up to me. So all of those things factored into going into the Hall of Fame and uh, is a very unique club. All you really needed was the eye test when it came to Jerry Rice. Now, the numbers obviously supported what he was able to do on the field. First-round draft pick out of Mississippi Valley State University. And, again, some great football played in HBCUs, uh, specifically, you know, in the 80s and in the times before. But uh, Jerry Rice was absolutely phenomenal. And if you hadn't seen him play or you never got a chance to see him play, you definitely missed a treat. South Carolina State head men's basketball coach Tony Madlock next. Hello, my name is Precious Rose Dunlap, and this is my mother, Michelle Timlake Roll, founder of Marjorie's Beef Jerky Incorporated. We would at this time like to thank our new customers as well as our repeating customers for your business. For every $1 million orders that we receive, our company is giving $2 million away to the bottom amongst 400 of our paid customers. You see, that's the way we roll. So come place an order at www.marjoriesbeefjerky.com. That's www.marjoriesbeefjerky.com. Marjorie's Beef Jerky is the best tasting beef jerky on this planet. Marjorie's Beef Jerky. Yeah, that's right. Because that's the way we roll. Mo stars, mo names in the news, just mo sports with Donald Ware from the press box to press row. Box to row national players of the week. First up is Beryl Kabamba. He's a forward for Spring Hill. Had a great week. A six-seven freshman from Clearwater, Florida. He's a redshirt freshman. He averaged twenty and a half points. Ten and a half rebounds, two steals per game, and shot 91% from the free throw line in two victories for the Badgers 
on last week. And then also Atea Bridges of Texas Southern. She's a graduate student from Lynette, Alabama, averaged 28.5 points, 5.5 assists, 4 rebounds, 2.5 steals in two games for the Texas Southern Tigers on last week. Atea Bridges and Beryl Kabamba, the Box to Row National Players of the Week. You can read more about them on our website at BoxToRow.com. Tony Madlock is in his first season as the head men's basketball coach at South Carolina State. The Bulldogs having a solid season to this point, 13-12 overall, 5-4 and four in conference play, got a home tilt on Saturday against Maryland Eastern Shore prior to Coach Madlock coming to South Carolina State as the head coach. He was an assistant coach at his alma mater, Memphis. Tony Madlock joins us here on Box to Row. Coach Madlock, welcome to the program. What's going on, my guy? You doing okay? I am doing great, and uh, I think you guys are doing pretty well. I, I know a tough loss on Monday on the road. That's always a tough trip when you take that Baltimore trip, Coppin and then uh, Morgan State. Your thoughts, you know, on the loss on Monday against the Bears? Uh, it was a tough loss, man, just because, you know, we had been playing really well going into that game, and you know, we had beaten, uh, you know, we had beat Coppin, of course, that Saturday before playing that Monday night game. And, and we beat uh, North Carolina Central, which is, you know, of course, one of the better teams in the league. And, and then we had beat Howard, of course, another one of the better teams in the league. So we were playing really, really well. And for us to go down there, and, and uh, I just thought we just didn't we just didn't have it that, that Monday night, man. But you got to give Morgan State credit, man. They played well. Yeah, I mean, that's going to happen sometime, though, right? I mean, it's college basketball. It's conference play. Yeah, I mean, you may have come off the win against Coppin, North Carolina, Central Howard, but I mean, you, you in most more times than not, you're not going to go undefeated throughout the course of a season. Oh, no doubt about it. And, and you just got to know, you know, from what we're trying to do is change this culture here. You know, South Carolina State men's basketball program. You know, we won one game last year. You know, I was hired. I was hired to to try to turn this program around. So I think we're doing a decent job of that. From from one win last year to to 13 right now with still the you know, the rest of this month to play and, and a little bit of, of March. So I, I'm, I'm proud of what my guys are, are doing. Your thoughts on the way your team is playing at this point in the season? Uh, I think we're playing well, man. I, I, it's one of those deals where, you know, they're, they're still trying to learn me, even though we're in, the, we're, we're in the month of February. And, you know, of course, we've gone through a whole season. But the guys are still right there. They don't, they don't know me 100% like I need them to. Uh, but we're trying, man. These guys are doing everything I'm asking them to do. And like I said, man, anytime you got a, a brand new coaching staff coming in and just changing probably everything you're doing from A to Z, uh, and just trying to change the culture, then you know it's it's a it's a process, and uh, we're going through it. But man, I'm proud of the guys, and I think we're playing pretty good. Tony Madlock in his first season as the head men's basketball coach at South Carolina State joins us here on Box to Row on ESPNU Radio on Sirius XM. I look at your early season schedule. I mean, you were – now, you guys were on a roll winning something like, what, six of seven or seven of eight, your only loss to Duke. But, I mean, quality wins. Talk about a win over South Florida, win over High Point, Tennessee State, the Citadel, Charleston Southern. I mean, these are quality wins. Speak to how well you played early on and then how playing well in those victories in particular helped you in MEAC play. 
Well, yeah, you're, you're exactly right, man. We had a stretch there where we were playing pretty well. Uh, you know, anytime, you know, you you know in, in the MEAC and the HBCUs, you have to play these guaranteed these money games. So anytime you go on the road and get a chance to play a, a South Florida a high major program and, and you come out of there with a, you know, you get a check and you get a W. So you're feeling good about that. And then, you you know, saying, like you said, you play a Hall of Famer with, with uh, Tubby Smith in High Point. Uh, we play him in this classic, uh, No Room for Racism classic, uh, in South Carolina, and, and we was able to, uh, you know, find a way to, to squeak out that win. And like I said, man, the Citadel, you know, we we lost to him at our place in overtime, and he was able to beat him at their place in Charleston Southern and, like you said, Tennessee State. So those are really, really good wins for us in our program because we started the year off we were 0-5. So we started the year off 0-5, man, just trying to figure it out. You know, of course, like I said earlier, playing those money games, playing on the road, and just trying to figure – figure out how we're going to play in our identity as a team. and But, yeah, doing that stretch, man, we were playing really well. You know, we went to Duke and just had a – we had a really slow start to that game, but Duke is Duke. And playing the Cameron Indoor, it was uh, something that my guys will be able to talk about forever. So, you know, and playing coach uh, at Coach K's place, you know, his last year. So, so big we, so we was honored to do that, man. But, yeah, we, the guys are playing well. And, and uh, like I said, again, man, we're proud of them. This – I mean, okay, so you had some – head coaching experience, at least on the collegiate level, as an interim coach for five games at Ole Miss in 2018. But what are some of the – I mean, you're right. To go from one win, right, to now a winning record right there. Like, nobody, I mean, right, you're in fourth place, but it's still a lot of season remaining in the MEAC. What were some of the first things you had to do as the head coach of South Carolina State kind of coming into the program and, to your point, turning things around and changing the culture? Well, the change in the coaches is is, is is always tough, especially when you come to a place like, you know, in South Carolina State, you know, it's a little behind the eight ball because we don't have 13 full basketball scholarships. So that's that's always a challenge when you're trying to come in here and change the culture and find a way to win games, but you, you're not on the same level field as everybody else that has 13 full basketball scholarships. So that's the first thing, that we just came in and tried to find out the guys that, you know, we, we thought were, were going to be able to help us and keep them on board from, from, the, uh, from last season. Uh, to go out and, of course, recruit uh, players, and that's what it's all about, man. So our biggest deal is going to have to be, you know, when this season's over with, you know, of course, uh, getting out in that transfer portal and finding players and, and, and recruits and high school guys and junior college guys and, and try to get the best talent we can to South Carolina State so we can continue to change this culture and, and, and find a way to win games. Tony Madlock, the head men's basketball coach at South Carolina State, joins us here on the program. We're going to talk some personnel with you, Coach Madlock. Some guy by the name of T.J. Madlock, he's only your leading scorer right now at 11.6 points per game. He's playing some good ball, controls things for you at the point. Speak speak to that guy's play. He's playing really well, man. Of course, he's my son. <laughs> uh, he, he's, a, he, he, he's, a, he's a true freshman. Uh, he, like you said, he leads us in scoring. He leads us in assists. Uh, he leads us in steals. Uh, minutes played. Um, uh, he is, you know, I think he's third on on team in rebounding, right at six rebounds a game for a, for a, for a point guard, for a combo guard uh, at six three. So he's doing real really well, man. And and I'm the, the, I think the most important thing is that I'm asking him to do so much for this team as a true freshman, eighteen year old. Uh, but the process, the most important thing I'm asking him to do is to try to lead. And he has to every night he has to guard the other team's best player, the best guard, because he, he's our best defensive guard. So. So I'm, I'm putting a lot on his shoulders, an 18-year-old, but, you know, like I said, man, I know him. Uh, of course, I know him well. He's my <laughs> son, so I think he can I think he can handle it, and he's done a great job of, of doing everything we can ask 
Excellent film. You know, sticking with him, I think it's an interesting dynamic because, you know, we, we've seen, we see where HBCUs as a whole and in, in specifically in athletics and, you know, you talk about football and you see, you know, four and five star guys committed, three star guys committed, and not so much in basketball, even a three star guy. This was a three star kid. Obviously, he's your son, but I think that's an interesting dynamic when you have father and son. So ultimately, um, I mean, you guys must have a great relationship because he had his fill of places that he could have gone, but he ultimately chose to come play for you at South Carolina State. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, he was recruited. He was recruited, you know, at the mid-major, mid-major plus level. So, and he probably had a good, you know, a, a legitimate nine to ten scholarship offers that, you know, he was going to have a chance to go somewhere and, and 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 play, you know, major, you know, basketball. So, no, man, it was it was a proud moment when I got the job. Of course, uh, you know, I didn't have to do too much recruiting. I got a great relationship with with his mom, which is my <laughs> wife. <laughs> so, 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 so that that helped out a lot. You know how it goes in recruiting, man. You got to find out who's going to be the decision maker. So the decision maker in this deal was, was, the, was my son and, and, and his mom. So I, I had an inside track on that one. So it was, it was, it was one of those deals that man, when, when I got the job and I told him, Hey man, I want to coach you. And he, he was right away. He said, I'm, I'm in dad. And we, and so we've been uh, moving forward since. That is great. <laughs> Tony Badlock, the head mids basketball coach at South Carolina state joins us here on the program. I mean, you've got some other guys definitely that are getting it done. Uh, Jamel Davis and Cameron Jones in particular. Talk about what these two young men bring to your team. Well, Cameron Jones uh, is is a guy that's you know uh, because I'm from Memphis and a, and a Memphian. He's someone who's who from the city of Memphis also. But he's he he was having a really good year for us. He's out for the rest of the year. Uh, he uh, had foot surgery. He against Dale State. He broke his foot. Uh, so he's he's out. He's out for the remainder of the year. So that's a big loss for us. Uh, because he's a guy that can play everything from the one through the four spot for us, so it's a big loss, uh, big loss for us. But hey, listen, he he he's done a great job, and he he's uh, gonna be rehabbing to get back ready for next year. And then uh, you know, Mr. Davis, man, what I call him, Mr. Davis, I call him because he is he does so much for our team, man. He is a guy, he's a guy that that you know plays you know everywhere from the three to the four to the five. Uh, he's a guy that that I need on the floor because. It really dictates on how we play defensively because we can do so many things when he's on the court, man. But he, he's six nine, uh, he's long, he's athletic, and he can make plays. Maryland Eastern Shore is the opponent. It's always good to be home again. You come off the road, now you're at home. You got a two game stretch at home. You can sleep in your own bed. You know, maybe better, maybe better preppers. I don't know. Maybe the road is is decent, but you are at home. What are some of the challenges that UMES present? Well, a lot. Uh, first of all, anytime you know, you, you we went to their place and we beat them, beat them uh, you know, on their court. So, anytime that happens, you know, you know that they're going to be coming in here trying to find a way to get that to get that win back. And uh, so, th- that's always a challenge. Uh, but their team, man, they're really scrappy, man. He has those guys playing really hard, man. They play, they play basically four guards. Sometimes they will have five guards on the floor, but they're a scrappy team. They, uh, they defend. They get out. They get out in transition. They shoot the three, uh, three ball. So it, it's it's one of those games, man, that we better be ready to play, man, because you know they're they're playing pretty well right now. Yeah. Last couple of thoughts, and we appreciate the time. What do you remember most about those days, your playing days at then Memphis State? 
Well, listen, well, first of all, you know, it, it's hometown. I'm, I'm born and raised in, in Memphis, Tennessee, so, you know, everybody who, you know, and I'm, I'm speaking for everybody, but, you know, nine times out of ten, when you grow up in that city, your dream is to play at, in my days, of course, it was Memphis State, now it's the University of Memphis. And you just dream of playing for that university because of so much tradition, and, you know, so many great players have played there. So, you know, coming out of high school, I was able to, to stay at home and, and play for the home team. So I had a great – I had great experience there as a, as a player. And then, of course, you know, when I got in the coaching profession, I always wanted to get back uh, home. And when Penny got the job, uh, in which, of course, we were former teammates, and when I was in college, he got the job and he hired me as his assistant. So, so nothing but love that way. Yeah, last thought. Those, all of those uh, assistant positions, uh, again, you look at UTEP, Auburn, Ole Miss, the interim tag for five games there, and then Memphis. Can you speak to how those experiences helped you as now the head coach at South Carolina State? Oh, so much, man. And you left out one. My first job was Arkansas State. Yes. Arkansas yes. State. So I went from Arkansas State to UTEP, uh, Auburn, Ole Miss, and then, then, of course, back home to Memphis. And, and from every coach that I've, that I've worked under, man, I've learned so much. And um, I've been in great situations where, you know, been in, in winning programs, man, been under really good coaches. I've coached and recruited a lot of really good players. So, you know, so all those things have helped me uh, so far this year. Tony Madlock in his first season as the head men's basketball coach at South Carolina State joins us here on Box to Row on ESPNU Radio on Sirius XM. The Bulldogs at home tomorrow hosting UMES. Coach Madlock, a pleasure. Great to catch up with you. Continued success to you and the Bulldogs. Man, thank you very much, man, for having me on. A complete turnaround, at least to this point, for South Carolina State. I got to get ready to run here on Box to Row. Thank you to Tony Madlock for joining us on today's program. You can find great information on our website, conversations, etc. at BoxToRow.com. And always remember to support those that support you. Box to Row on ESPNU Radio on Sirius XM is produced by DW. Time for this show to drop the lid. That'll do it for this week's From the Press Box to Press Row with Donald Ware.